Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where explorers and adventurers tell their stories. Coming up. Yes, it's nice being able to come, you know, sitting in your car and appreciating not having to be out in the wind. But I think you sort of put another sort of barrier between you and actually really sort of embracing the landscape and the place you're at by just sort of, you know, creating too much comfort for you. So even though it was sort of measurable in bits and um, we had to camp out in minus 20 degrees and think got a bit frostbitten and things like that, I think actually sort of, you know, it's sort of a lot more ingrained in my memory and I feel I've actually sort of really experienced the place in a way you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. I'm John Horsfall and on this weekly podcast we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders and many more. I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on an adventure of your own. But before we start, if you're enjoying the show, sign up to our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com where I'll show you behind the scenes, I do giveaways and offering you the opportunity to come on an adventure. On today's show, we have an explorer and conservation scientist. She has traveled all over the world with her work and done some incredible expeditions from cycling across Bolivia to a five-week trek in the Indonesian rainforest. On today's podcast, we talk about those expeditions and some of the amazing moments she's had along the way. I am delighted to introduce Iris Berger to the show. Hello, thank you. Iris, great to have you on the show. Uh, you are a fellow member of the Scientific Exploration Society, and I was really intrigued to find out more about your expeditions. But I suppose probably the best place to start is with you and how you got into all these adventures. Um, so I'm from Austria, so I grew up you know, right by the mountains and I got to go skiing and hiking on the weekends. So I think there was always quite a strong connection connection with um, nature and sort of adventures on the weekend, even on quite a small scale. Um, but I think the first sort of big expedition I got to do after my first year at university. So I, I decided to do, um, do my undergrad in Scotland and Edinburgh um, in biology and ecology. So, you know, learning more, more about the natural world. And I was quite keen to have some sort of more adrenaline kick and I guess figure out, you know, what one place is in the world. And so sort of, I guess at that age, you know, being 18 or I think I just turned 19, I really want to, you know, sort of test myself and see what I'm actually capable of because I think I never really had the chance to do it before. So I think, uh, sort of, yeah, diving in and seeing what's possible. And but I think once, you know, once you start off, really another world really opens and think you know what you can do and actually once you're on the ground you're capable of a lot more than you think you are good to hear that you uh were at edinburgh too ah what did you do what did you do i I did landscape architecture nice but i suppose having that sort of with edinburgh you have that sort of you have sort of freedom to explore all around it you've got the sea you've got salisbury crags you've got arthur steve so but I suppose your first sort of big expedition out of uni, what was that? Um, that was, so I combined two expeditions in a way. Um, so after my first year um, off, off university, I did cycling across Bolivia. But before that, I just did a sort of research assistantship um, internship with an NGO in the Peruvian Amazon, sort of collecting um, 
um, baseline biodiversity data sort of to get an insight on the effect of climate change on sort of the um, this nature reserve. And you know, flying um, basically across the world, I wanted to sort of use my time and um, add a bit more of an adventure component because I think it was an amazing experience. I certainly learned a lot of being in the Amazon and helping out there, but it was very much sort of you know, it was sort of pre-organized, and I was just essentially I had to fly out, and that was it. Um, so I didn't have to push myself that much out of my comfort zone in that sense. So I wanted a bit more of an adventure. Um, so, yeah, I think I decided to cycle across Bolivia <laughs> um, with a guy I met on the internet very last minute because <laughs> a friend of mine dropped out. So <laughs> uh, I don't revise, but um, yeah, that was my sort of first dive into proper adventure. Did you put out an advert for someone to cycle across Bolivia with you? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think literally a month before I was out to go to South America um, and in the Amazon, obviously didn't have any internet signal. So I had to sort out everything before. I um, literally just posted on a variety of Facebook groups, if, you know, sort of world cycle touring pages, if anyone would like to join me and I think Explorers Connect as well. Um, but eventually this guy from Bolivia, actually, uh, Mario, uh, got in touch and said he would be quite keen and he, he didn't quite know whether he would be able to at that point. It was quite nerve wracking going out, flying out to South America, not knowing whether I actually have someone to cycle with. Um, but yeah, he did join and he was he was amazing. He was a you know really amazing expedition party. It was amazing actually having someone from the country with me as well. Um, but he's from the sort of Bolivia sort of divided. You've got you know half of it being the Andes and the Altiplano where we cycled, and the other half is um, the lowlands where you got basically the Amazon. Um, so he was from the lowlands, um, so it's actually quite a change for him to sort of be cycling at like minus twenty degrees and you know, dry, dry and love wind. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a fantastic experience. And it turned out my, my parents weren't so keen and I told them more, most details afterwards. But So why, what was it about Bolivia that attracted you there? Quite tricky to say. I mean, because I was flying out to Peru, I obviously wanted to go somewhere, probably to another country that was sort of nearby. And I, you know, just doing a bit of research, it seemed that Bolivia was sort of less touristy. I think it ha- has the highest percentage of indigenous people in South America and I think yeah just sort of being less traveled to and because I I think that really appealed to me and having that sort of altiplano and sort of quite a contrast to sort of the Amazon where I was in before um, I think just the openness and just the, you know we did come across villages but every three three days or so um, so it's just yeah just seeing the landscape and sort of wilderness aspect of it if you will. Good. And so with Bolivia, I mean, how long did that take you to cycle across the country? Um, only three weeks, um, actually. Um, oh, yeah. Pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, like, once you, I mean, there was sort of some up and downs, but actually, sort of, you know, cycling continues in the, you know, in the plateau. So there's actually not that much, not too much, you know, altitude to gain. So. And so, what were the sort of moments along the way? Because by having, um, I, what was his name again? Mario. Malia. By having him, I suppose you had a really good intro into the sort of people of Bolivia in terms of introducing you, spoke their language, and it probably opened up quite a lot of doors. Is that did you find that or Yeah, definitely, definitely did. I mean I'd say um because he's not from the Altiplano, I think there's some sort of wouldn't say tension, but there's you know, they have a very different culture, the people, the indigenous people living on the Altiplano versus of the European ancestry, 
you know, Spanish ancestry people and living in the lowlands. Um, so that, that's quite a big cultural divide, I say, within the country. Um, and I think people were really quite surprised, actually, to sort of, you know, I mean, I'm not saying there are loads of people cycling across Bolivia, or, but, you know, there are people doing, you know, cycling across the whole South America. So occasionally do have people coming, cycling you know, through the village and coming across them. Um, but I think that for a lot of people, I think it was the first person cyclist from Bolivia they encountered. Um, so it was quite interesting to see and you know how they interact as well. Um, I'd say people from the Alta Plana are a bit, a bit more reserved, a bit shy. I think that just comes with essentially the climate being so harsh, so windy, um, being so hard to grow anything <laughs> year round. Um, but I think certainly, like big, I could speak a bit of Spanish, but it wouldn't have gotten me very far. I think. <laughs> And what were the sort of amazing moments along the way? Because those three weeks, I mean, you were you a big cyclist before? Nope. <laughs> no, I could not. I could not change a tire. I had to sort of you know, get my friend from university sort of te- um, teach me how to take up a tire and repair puncture. I mean, I cycled before, uh, you know, a fair bit just for fun and well, cycling to uni. Um, but I, it wasn't something I had done loads before. I hadn't really cycled much, you know, any overnight trips, any of that. Um, so it was quite a sort of learn as you go thing, but surprisingly, we didn't have a single puncture, so we were quite lucky in that respect. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many incredible moments. I think it would be quite hard to sort of pinpoint one. I think just you know, sort of racing some Bicunias and just I think really for me the overall package is sort of traveling or encountering a country in a way you would never be able to do otherwise. Because I mean, I've always loved traveling and done it, you know, quite a lot growing up. But I think there was always some sort of barrier and um you know you not really get to know people or I feel like so so we were cycling in the Altiplan there were quite lots of jeeps so there are a few salt lakes around in the landscape they're really pretty coming in all different colors you know green bright green red and yellow and really beautiful so you have quite a few jeeps coming around with the tourists um and I felt like you wouldn't really be able to sort of appreciate the landscape in the same way as we did you know Yes, it's nice being able to come, you know, sitting in your car and appreciating, not having to be out in the wind. Um, but I think you sort of put another sort of barrier between you and actually really sort of embracing the landscape and the place you're at by just sort of, you know, creating too much comfort for you. So even though it was sort of measurable in bits and um, we had to camp out in minus 20 degrees and think got a bit frostbitten and things like that, I think actually sort of, you know, it's, Sort of a lot more ingrained in my memory, and I feel I've actually sort of really experienced the place in a way you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Yeah, what is it about Edinburgh? I mean, I, it was exactly the same sort of situation with me. I, when I sort of decided after Edinburgh to cycle across America, and again, barely cycled very much, didn't know how to change a tire. After ten days, I was like, ah, oh, okay, this is amazing. Hopefully, I never get a flat tire. And then it happened, and then I spent an hour and a half sort of dagging away banging away at it trying to sort of rip it off kind of got a clue i don't think uh youtube videos were out on your phone just about then but but yeah it's um it's such an amazing way to sort of experience the country and so from that i mean camping out at sort of minus 20 and being frostbitten that must have certainly felt pretty uh well not great (laughs) (laughs) no I mean luckily I was quite sure I think it was a few days before we finished so it was there much okay we're we're almost done sort of thing um get there um 
but yeah it was definitely I think I had to wake up every 10 minutes or something like that in my sleeping bag just off to sort of sit-ups and just sort of keep some warmth I mean you probably would take if you're sensible a lot more kit but essentially because I was a first year student not having much money and also I think coming obviously from the Amazon there was so much limited having to pack for being in rainforest as well as being at minus camping out at minus 20 was just like a bit of a challenge so I think you could do more sensibly in terms of just you know, taking better kit essentially um, but it wasn't too bad um, it was quite contrast afterwards going back to the rainforest of Amari at that and but yeah the climatic contrast but yeah I think that's richness comes with struggles so I think it's definitely I'll definitely do it again so <laughs> <laughs> wow and so with um that trip that's that was your first sort of big trip out of your comfort zone sort of pushing yourself and that sort of spurred on quite a few adventures from then mm-hmm. yeah um so after my second year at university I did a mega transact um across Sumatra um so it was actually me and my um boyfriend and um two Sumatran mountaineers who are absolutely incredible I mean they take all the credits and I think they're currently attempting to do 100 first ascents um Martyr mountains um which is amazing um but what we did essentially so we started off um in the very northern part of Sumatra called Ache and not that many people go there. It's still weirdly sort of on sort of bit of travel warnings and sort of warning of terrorist effects and things like that. But these are the loveliest people I've ever met in any of my expeditions. They're just so kind. I mean, we could it was actually struggled to sort of move each day because everyone would want to invite us home and just feed us an incredible amount of food. Um, but we started off sort of having about ten days, two weeks, um, in sort of a moss cloud rainforest. Um, and this re- um, this area is completely unknown, well, was completely unknown to researchers. So essentially, we just did a very simple sort of bird surveys. We were walking each day, but recording uh, all the birds we were see- seeing. So I think that brought a lot of new challenge with it, sort of having, it was physically incredibly demanding. I mean, maybe hard in Bolivia, I'm not quite sure. It's just, we managed to walk about sort of two two and a half kilometers at most each day because we had to well Sumatra and team members had to sort of use machetes to cut their way through um because there were no paths or anything so it's insanely dense um stuff but at the same time you have to be really aware of your surroundings because you don't want to miss a bird um because you know you have a few seconds to see what species it could be and recorded um so I think that's sort of having physically really demanding as well as mentally still having to be with it I think that was quite a new challenge um but essentially yeah there was sort of two weeks covering <laughs> a very small area um of on un- research forest and take the first records of the bird species you get there we also attempted a first ascent but we failed <laughs> um, um unfortunately one of our team members so he tried to um, push his machete down to the ground to rest but his finger slipped because there was a rock beneath so essentially sliced up his fingers down to the bone and that was also the furthest away we could have been from any sort of road um and also he it was doing ramadan so he wasn't eating or drinking i have no idea how he did that um so and then he that he used to stop stop eating and drink completely because I thought it was a punishment. But it was fine in the end. We got back, and he was an immensely tough guy. Yeah, and then from then on, we sort of it was just then at then at that point, just me and my boyfriend. We just walked from this part of Acha down to the coast uh, for another five or six weeks or so, 
um, obviously in a far more degraded landscape, um, but again, still recording the birds. And it was at that point much more about the interactions we have with um, the villages and um, yeah, sort of more well, for cultural experience in a way. Wow. And so with that, you were sort of looking at the birds and with the sort of deforestation that's sort of going on there, because it's quite a big area for palm oil. Were you looking at this sort of sort of assessing how palm oil is having such a huge impact on deforestation there? Well, sort of, um, not specifically palm oil. And it was more just seeing how, you know, landscapes changing, more impact, human impact palm oil as well uh, being grown um, how that's obviously sort of degrading the bird community um, but I have to say I only that was after my second year at university so it was very much the science was rather simple it was um, I feel I hope it still have a very you know, major impact in a sense that it was just an area that was unknown to scientists or sort of any sort of baseline biodiversity data can have you know, hopefully a fairly big impact in terms of you know, building the knowledge base. Um, but it was sort of very simple, just essentially sort of looking what's out there. And I think then later on, I built more and sort of did more expeditions that sort of more scientific, had a greater scientific focus, more scientifically more robust in that sense. Your life as a sort of conservation scientist, you are now taking that to a sort of new level, studying your PhD. What is a conservation scientist? Oh, God, it comes in all forms. <laughs> um, I think it's quite a broad term, really. I mean, it's just obviously science around conservation and sort of how acknowledging in a way that we've failed quite miserably like in the past. I mean, there are all sorts of measures to try and halt um, extinction and you know, wildlife declines, but we haven't been that successful. So it's really how, you know, building the evidence base, like how do you conserve species? You know, don't go with your gut feelings, go with the science essentially. And, you know, we're... It's it's a very broad field, but it comes to you know where is the most biodiversity. Where should we have protected areas? But um, building you know from what's known now, protected areas aren't you know going to save our species, and there's there are a lot of ethical concerns around it. So building more sustainable agriculture that allows species to move between it comes it's quite varied from sort of behavioural um, observations to more sort of mathematical models. It's it's quite a broad field and coming very interdis interdisciplinary as well, you know, very much sort of natural sciences, which is more on the side what I do, to um, social scientists trying to understand the impact a con given conservation measure might have on the local community um, or indigenous knowledge and things like that. So it's, it's a very broad field. Where where do you sort of see the future of conservation going? I find the balance between not being a pessimist, but um, being a realistic optimist, I guess. Um, I think it basically needs a revolution. I think a lot of people in the conservation field have, have agreed. I mean, it's changed over time and what the focus is. And um, there's a lot of a disagreement within the conservation community where it should go. But I think everything is clear that what we've done so far is not working. And I think while nature has to become you know, the centre of decision-making, or at least a key part of decision-making in sort of mainstream economic and business spheres. But at the same time, I think there needs to be sort of a change and revalue. Well, yeah, just revalue how we place nature in our lives and sort of, you know, into our, accent, in, in our interactions with nature and um, not sort of having a dualistic idea, you know, humans, wildlife, you know, building a barrier around it. And because I think that's had, that, had, that was sort of the original uh, movement of conservation, you know, put things in national parks, place a fence around it, so very much fortress conservation, that's of the idea of wilderness, ignoring the fact that people were actually there. So 
with a lot of you know sort of colonial undertones to it so we people agree we definitely need to move past that um then there was sort of movement around how much you know true would put a value in nature in economic terms and now it's sort of well who knows where it's going <laughs> i think no one really but i think what is clear that we do need to change what we're doing because it's not not really working and um and not just changing our relationship with nature yeah i i sort of agree it's um sort of figuring out a way of nature and humans to coexist mm. in a way which I suppose puts value on the sort of communities because we had Lizzie Daly on in on episode 16 I believe and you know we sort of spoke in sort of detail about the sort of coexistence between humans and at the time the wildlife but it's a really sort of interesting or pressing concern which I think as you say there's a lot of lot of stakeholders involved and therefore a lot of people will get annoyed and a lot of people no matter which way you go no definitely and i think there is because there is quite a big divide you know people arguing the conservation movement i think you know i've seen a recent descriptor review you know about you know very much in sort of economic talking about assets and things like that and there has been outcry but other conservationists we, we, we shouldn't be using this term for nature you know there's an intrinsic value and we, you know, we shouldn't go near these sort of trying to yeah, price nature as well. So I think sort of marrying all the different streams of conservation will be certainly tricky. And the, um, but I think what everyone I think is agreeing on that we just need a quite a drastic change, not just minor adjustments to what we've been doing before, but really sort of a, you know, on the massive scale and readdressing I think the drivers um, of biodiversity. So really, get, let's get rid of capitalism sort of thing and um, you know changing our economic system and I think um, food system transformation as well because agriculture at the moment is still the biggest driver of biodiversity. Stuff. Um, climate change will um, come up and in about 100 years or so probably overtake agriculture, but I think it's just coming to the root causes rather than just really sort of addressing you know, what you see in the ground and then you know it comes down to sort of blaming or local communities for for bushmeat hunting and you know using the local forest whereas really it's sort of the massive big corporation driven by um demand in the west that's sort of driving um, deforestation so i think it's just making sure it's equitable as well when you go on these sort of expeditions to sumatra doing your research how do you prepare for them I think it really depends. I think there's no sort of generic answer. Um, I mean, from the boring stuff, like you're talking about logistics and flight, um, obviously, I think there's sort of a mental component to it as well. Um, and depending what it is, whether there's a physical component, whether I do need to do a bit of training for that. But I tended to not <laughs> be able to prepare that much as or well, in a way that, because of my expeditions tend to be sort of in the summer you know, summer holidays and exams right before that. Um, so I always feel quite unprepared when I actually go just because I, you know, was so busy revising. <laughs> um, but I think the lesson to learn is that it will be fine once in the field. I mean, there's always something you will forget. Don't forget the key bit, but, you know, you're not going to always have everything ready. And there are things, depending on the country you're going to, that you'll be able to get there as well. Well, Iris, there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week. With the first being, on your travels, what's the one gadget or item that you always bring with you? It's a bit tricky because I think my expeditions always varied quite a lot in terms of the objective. You know, is it an adventure-based or very much a sort of science-focused um, expedition? Um, I think a GPS was quite very 
definitely quite useful. Um, but actually, what I always take is some sort of treat for myself. Um, so, I mean, chocolate unfortunately melts, so I would, would normally take chocolate. Um, but I think it's just some sort of nice energy bar or some sort of, I don't know. Yeah, something to cheer you up when you haven't had a rough day. <laughs> some jelly babies or something. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favourite adventure book? Um, it's quite hard. I don't think I've got one. I mean, I like sort of, um, sort of George Mumbers of early... Um, books and sort of environmental investigation like um, on I think specifically the Amazon watershed um, which is sort of about him being essentially investigating um, deforestation in Brazil and so sort of being especially sort of in the forefront you know what's happening in the Brazilian Amazon on the ground and um, you know a lot of the yeah the injustice happening there and so sort of, I think the combination of having it sort of adrenaline kick and like nice descriptive writing with some sort of more I think inside about you know what's politically historically happening um yeah I think that's sort of that combination and I mean that's obviously quite specific because I've done um research in Brazil as well um so I think just me always trying to sort of read more around where I'm actually going and the history and um, things like that in an engaging way so I think the other book would be Norman Lewis and Empire of the East, which is sort of his travels um, in Indonesia and sort of his encounters with um, his observation takes and sort of the impact of the ruling Javanese and yeah, how it's impacted sort of local communities. And um, so I think that combination of sort of being able to get some factual knowledge and that um, being able to sort of see the place where I'm going in a different way with sort of engaging good storytelling, essentially. Why... Why do you think adventures are important to you? Um, I think it's just probably because our world is way too complex for anyone sort of to be able to comprehend. I mean, evolutionary, our brains are not sort of wired for you know everything. You know, our globalized, super complex world with an overflow of information, and um, you know, I think also that capitalism obviously makes us sort of believe we're, we're sort of isolated, competitive, you know, ruthless individuals and sort of the constant competition and, you know, everything you do is sort of productive. And yeah, I think just the over complexity and over stimulus of like our world where I just sort of striving for some sort of simplicity in a way. And um, I think I find it quite hard to sort of switch off when I'm at home. So I think I have to really take me out of that environment to sort of very simple, you know, um, tasks you know if it's sort of cycling or um each day you know just getting from a to b getting a certain amount of miles done essentially i think i think that's really appealing to me yeah I, I agree with that i think it's nice just to take yourself away leave your mobile at home just sort of go out for whether you know it's a weekend or a week uh these sort of adventures that we do sort of just completely takes you from one lifestyle to another and sometimes the simplicity is just bliss Definitely. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite quote i was thinking about that because i don't think i do i really do quotes <laughs> um, i think it changed all the time but i think the red thing i read on twitter the other day was um by kate Rulworth, the author of donut economic um don't be an optimist if it makes you relax. Don't be a pessimist if it makes you give up. Be an activist and get into action. And I think that's just, especially coming obviously from the conservation background and sort of the environmental background, um, I think it's, again, talk about the conservation movement, but there's a movement to have more, talk about, you know, optimism and, yeah, optimism, conservation. 
um, and not going away from a sort of doom and gloom narrative, but at the same time, you know, being realistic and the numbers aren't you know, lying and we need to do something about it. So I think personally, I find it quite challenging to find the right balance of, um, yeah, getting actually being able to, you know, do something about it and get into action rather than just sort of, yeah, be dragged down by what <laughs> all the news and things like that. So. Yeah, it's a switch off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, people listening are always keen to go up to travel and go on these sort of grand adventures. What's the one thing you would recommend to people wanting to get into adventure? Um, go. <laughs> um, I mean, it sounds, it sounds silly, but I think after having done one expedition while well, that being cycling versus Bolivia, it seems really easy in a way. I mean, even now when I think about playing another expedition, it all seems quite a bit scary and unknown and um you know all the things that could go wrong but I was really surprised how calm and confident you are once you're actually there and really surprising yourself how you handle the situation so I think getting the first expedition done is probably the most the hardest that you can do but once you have done that I think it still seems very natural to me yeah I think I was saying in the last episode um it's very much about um the planning is exciting, but the start is always terrifying. But literally, as soon as you take the first step, it's, oh, okay, all right, we're off. <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised. I was extremely calm once I was actually in Bolivia. I mean, the, the bit was because it was something I had initially planned the expedition. It was Mario who was joining me. Um, but it was it sounds weird that he was sort of relying, you know, I was doing the planning, the, the route planning, and where we'll be ending up the next day, where we'll be finding would be finding water and things like that and I was nine just turned 19 at the time and he was I think 32 um, and also from the country so it was a bit bizarre for me but I think because having that sort of expectation almost I think it made me a lot more yeah sure I can do that (laughs) I I think you only found out about my age you know about two weeks in so (laughs) Um, but yeah I think that and I think I guess it's also about finding the right balance of like it being definitely pushing you out of the comfort zone a lot but obviously still being somewhat useful because I think before Bolivia, the year before, I was kind of thinking, oh, I should do an event. I think I was, I think I was thinking about walking across South Africa, um, just having finished school. Um, and I think that was just a bit, you know, a bit too ambitious, essentially. I think, um, I, think it, I, I obviously didn't end up doing it. I think, yeah, doing something that's actually pushing you, but not completely uh, unrealistic. Well. Yeah. Uh, what are you doing now and how can people follow your adventures? Um, so I've just started my PhD, um, obviously not being an exciting adventure at the moment. <laughs> um, I mean, I've got um, I've got social um, Instagram and Facebook. And Twitter, um, but yeah, hopefully I'll be able to get out at some point this year. I was supposed to um, go to Guinea in West Africa in 2020, um, obviously got postponed. Um, so I hope I'll be doing that this year as well, looking into sort of wildlife corridors and West African lions. Um, so hopefully we'll get to do that this year. And I'll be doing my field work and expeditions for my PhD in India as well. Oh, amazing. Well, I can't wait to follow along and see see the adventures you get up to, hopefully towards the end of the year. I think it's starting to calm, calm down a bit now. Yeah. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. <laughs> And uh, yeah, look forward to uh, following your trips in the future. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now. And don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com. 
I hope to see you next time for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.